In recent weeks, there's been a major development surrounding the 2021 Capitol Hill riot. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol says Trump and associates engaged in a criminal conspiracy. A California-based federal judge said that Trump likely committed felonies in connection with the events of that day. The House panel investigating the Capitol insurrection has scored a major win in its bid to see emails from a Trump advisor. That advisor is the guy who spoke right before Trump at the January 6th rally, a guy named John Eastman. We know there was fraud, traditional fraud that occurred. We know that that- Before the insurrection, he was known as a fringe figure in conservative circles. But now, Eastman's not so fringe anymore. I'm Gustavo Arián. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Wednesday, April 6, 2022. Today, in the second part of a two-part series, who exactly is John Eastman? Back with us is my L.A. Times colleague, Sarah D. Wire. She covers the U.S. Department of Justice and National Security with a focus on January 6th. Sarah, welcome again to The Times. Thanks for having me. So U.S. District Court Judge David O. Carter emphasized in his ruling that John Eastman, who is a law professor here in California, that Eastman played a significant role in Trump's attempt to hold on to the White House. So what does Judge Carter say Eastman did? So Eastman was the architect of the legal theory at the root of Trump's attempt to overturn the election. And the key thing was his theory that Pence had the legal authority to send the electoral votes back to the states. Yeah, you want to talk about being an architect. Eastman actually was the speaker right before Trump at that January 6th rally that turned into the riot. Eastman spoke alongside Rudy Giuliani, actually. This election was stolen in its seven states. Let me ask Professor Eastman to explain. Hello, America! And Eastman spent his whole time speaking about how the voting machines were issuing fraudulent votes. And all we are demanding of Vice President Pence is this afternoon at 1 o'clock, he let the legislatures of the state look into this so we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. And then Giuliani urged everyone to go fight. I'll be darned if they're going to take away our free and fair vote. And we're going to fight to the very end to make sure that doesn't happen. We know at the end, Eastman's advice went nowhere. Vice President Mike Pence ended up ignoring him. But what was going on behind the scenes on January 6th and even before? Like, what was leading up on Eastman's end toward that day? So Eastman wrote two legal memos where he tried to advise Pence that when Congress met January 6th to certify the Electoral College count, Pence could declare the results of several states in dispute. And those electoral votes would go uncounted. Doing so would have turned Trump from the loser in the election to the winner. And he also provided an alternative. Eastman said that Pence could delay the certification and give state lawmakers time to select new slates of electors who would vote for Trump. You know, Trump and Eastman repeatedly pressed Pence and his staff to follow the advice. They met in person. They met by phone. But, you know, Pence was never really on board with the idea and the morning of January 6th announced that he wasn't going to follow this advice. But, you know, the pressure campaign continued during the riot. 
you know, we actually have emails released by the committee of Eastman pressuring Pence's attorney while they're all in the safe rooms that, you know, it's not too late to do this and it's your fault that the Capitol's under siege. Judge Carter, in his ruling about releasing Eastman's emails, he straight up said that Trump's efforts were, quote, a coup in search of a legal theory, end quote, and that Eastman was that legal theory. In the ruling, he depicted Eastman as the criminal co-conspirator and urged further investigation. This whole suit is about whether certain emails should be handed over to the committee. And the judge was being asked to look at just a tiny sliver of documents. And the committee said that there's an exemption in federal law to attorney-client privilege, which says you can't shield documents if you're giving advice on how to commit a crime. And so that's exactly what the judge was looking at. Now, it doesn't mean that charges are going to be filed against President Trump or uh, you know, John Eastman, but it does potentially put pressure on the Justice Department to act in some way. And Carter ordered the House to get the emails and documents, and he overruled Eastman's claim that there was attorney-client privilege in that. What does all of this mean for President Trump? Honestly, very little at this point. You know, he, he wasn't a party to this lawsuit. You know, he's not really directly involved in this in any way. But it is the first time I've been able to find where a judge has put in a court filing that a sitting president had committed a felony while in office. The obvious parallel for most listeners, how does this compare to what was happening in Watergate? You know, when you look at it, President Nixon never faced criminal charges related to the burglary and cover-up. I, Gerald R. Ford, have granted a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. But several of his top aides and campaign lawyers were the ones who served prison time for conspiracy and obstruction of justice. And you've kind of seen a little bit of that with Trump as well. That's what the uh, judge said in his ruling. Wow. Coming up after the break, where and how John Eastman became such a trusted voice for Trump. Welcome back. Sarah, many Americans heard about John Eastman for the first time because of his involvement with Trump. But those of us who have covered politics in California have known about him for a long time. He's been a longtime conservative activist from Orange County. My name is John Eastman. I'm a professor of constitutional um, He was always someone who was on the fringe, but he was always still in the room. You know, he was a longtime leader at the Claremont Institute, which is a right-wing think tank based in Upland. He founded their law firm that represents conservative clients. He was a former dean of Chapman Law School. He was a law clerk for Clarence Thomas, and he has a lot of friends within the Republican Party. Yeah, full disclosure, Chapman University is my alma mater. And having been a reporter in Orange County, you always thought of him as, oh, he's kind of like, a gadfly, a well-funded gadfly and a gadfly with a lot of friends in high places, but still, nevertheless, a gadfly. But how and when then did Eastman get into the Trump universe? So they kind of found common cause in their opposition to birthright citizenship, which is the idea that any child born in the country is automatically bestowed with citizenship. The president says so-called birthright citizenship is not covered by the 14th Amendment, tweeting many legal scholars agree. Eastman has argued for years against the constitutionality of that principle. And he wrote a really widely publicized opinion piece in 2020 questioning whether, as an American-born child of immigrants, Kamala Harris qualified to be president. While Harris's mother was born in India and her father in Jamaica, she was born in Oakland, California, and is eligible for both the vice presidency and the presidency under the constitutional requirements. This theory has been largely rejected by legal scholars, but it brought him to 
Trump's attention. Yeah, it seemed so many people just automatically ridiculed Eastman's essay about Harris. But for Trump, it's like, hey, here's someone who might be able to help me in the future. Yeah, and he quickly moved to, you know, his his campaign reached out to Eastman the weekend after the election to ask him to start helping writing legal briefs. And he even wrote the briefs that appeared before the uh, Supreme Court. And all of them were rejected, you know, multiple courts around the country. How have Eastman's ties with Trump and the January 6th riots complicated his legal career in California? You know, professionally, it has... You know, it led him to resign from Chapman. I think it was a, a mutual decision. That's how he's kind of described it. Um, and he's also facing an ethics investigation by the California State Bar. They announced, you know, earlier in March that he had already been under investigation for months. And besides accepting his resignation, my alma mater, Chapman, they now face a subpoena from the House committee. So now they have to hand over the documents and emails that Eastman was sending from his school email address, all regarding what happened with the 2020 election. How's Chapman responding? You know, Chapman agreed to comply when they received the subpoena. And these are some of the same emails that Eastman refused to provide to the committee. Eastman sued to prevent the transfer until he could look at the contents of each email, saying that they included work product and communications protected by attorney-client privilege. Chapman's lawyers have argued that as a former dean, he should have been aware of the university's policy, that it owned any information kept on its server. And actually, when Eastman wrote those legal opinions that appeared before the Supreme Court back in December 2020, the university president explicitly told Eastman in a public statement that he could no longer use his university account to work on Trump legal issues. Folks, this is why you have to have your work email, your private email, and your secret email account as well. After the break, how the House Select Committee's focus appears to have quickly turned to Eastman. And we're back with LA Times DC-based reporter Sarah D. Wire. And Sarah, before the break, we were talking about how Chapman University has to hand over these documents and emails that Eastman sent from his work email address to a House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. What might come out of those emails? What does a House committee think are in them? So this order applied to just a small portion of the emails they sought. These are just the emails between January 4th and January 7th. And so they're likely to include communications back and forth between Eastman and the president, Eastman and Mike Pence's office, you know, maybe some outside legal scholars that Eastman was pointing to. But there's only 111 emails here that this applies to. Chapman identified over 19,000 emails that would fall under the committee's subpoena, ranging between the November election and when Trump left office in January. And he has allowed Eastman to review each of the emails, and he's going through about 1,000 to 1,500 a day and deciding which ones he's going to assert attorney-client privilege over. This process could probably take until about April 21st, um, Eastman's lawyer is saying. At that point, the court has to decide which emails actually fall under attorney-client privilege and which ones don't. The House General Counsel has really called Eastman pivotal to their investigation. The panel's push for Eastman's emails is its most formal effort yet to link Trump to a federal crime. Lawmakers cannot bring criminal charges. They can only make a referral to the Justice Department, which has not indicated it's considering charging Trump. 
They've done 800 depositions at this point. They've got another 100 or so more to go. But the House General Counsel called Eastman the central player in the development of a legal strategy to justify a coup. Yeah, so Eastman, his role was just incredibly important on January 6th, at least in trying to overturn the election. I mean, it was his strategy that was driving the day. How are politicians and activists in the Republican Party reacting to what's going on with Eastman? You know, he's still a conservative hero in some circles. You know, he's plenty of supporters who've said he was simply fulfilling his duty as an attorney by seeking all legal options for his client. He's raised more than $179,000 for his own legal defense through a Christian fundraising site similar to GoFundMe. You know, and there's new revelations in the last month about information the committee already possesses that kind of raises some more questions about other relationships he has with conservative figureheads like Jenny Thomas. The wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas sent over two dozen text messages to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows encouraging the Trump administration to try to throw out the 2020 election results. And Senator Ted Cruz, who was a longtime friend and one of the senators who agreed to challenge the electoral votes of certain key states. Finally, Sarah, what can we expect then in the coming days and months with Eastman and his emails on the January 6th committee? You know, the committee is supposed to start having hearings starting in May, and there'll be weeks and weeks of public hearings. And then there should be some kind of holistic report that comes out before the midterm elections. And, you know, hopefully as a member of the public, we'll get to see some of those emails at that point. It is imperative that we establish the truth of that day and ensure that an attack of that kind cannot happen and that we root out the causes of it all. Do you think eventually Eastman will have to testify publicly? I guess that's a big question right now for the committee. They're going to hold these public hearings, but when they deposed him back in December, he showed up and pled the fifth for almost every single question they asked. You know, the constitutional principle that you don't have to be a witness against yourself. Sarah, thank you so much for this conversation. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, we travel to Tijuana for a new podcast from our sibling publication, the San Diego Union Tribune. David Toledo was a jefe on this episode, and our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, David Toledo, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz, our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shani Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Eepen. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. I'm Gustavo Arian. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this model. Gracias. Gracias.